0: At 27, losing this job, I was like scraping up change to put gas in the car to go to interviews. I'd wasted three years of my life in the entertainment industry at that time, or so I thought. I was like, I'm 27. I don't have a pot to piss in. I've wasted all this time. I don't know what to do with my life. And I was freaked out. I got out of a relationship I'd been in for six years that wasn't healthy. It was all a blessing, but at the time, you know, you're like whoa this is uh
1: this is dark welcome to imposters the show where i talk to world-class execs athletes and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better i'm your host alex lieberman co-founder and executive chairman of morning brew my guest today is jillian michaels Jillian is a health and fitness expert, an Emmy-nominated TV personality, and the author of eight New York Times bestselling books. Jillian's massively popular home workout videos made her a household name in the early aughts. And today, Jillian boasts an audience of millions across our various platforms, including social media and her podcast, Keeping It Real, Conversations with Jillian Michaels. Jillian is a prominent voice in the health and fitness world, and at times, she's even been something of a controversial figure, including for her involvement on the weight loss reality show, The Biggest Loser. But what some people might not realize is that behind this confident and tough public persona that Jillian has exemplified for so long is someone who has had a long history of depression— we get into Jillian's on and off battle with depression, as well as how she handles the scrutiny as a public figure right after this quick break. Jillian Michaels, thank you so much for joining Imposters.
0: Thank you for having me. You have such a great background.
1: I know club. The, the morning brew team hooked it up. It's the, the $20 <laughs> blue Amazon lights in the background that really fill out the room. Is
0: that what it is? Oh, that's I need it. that in my life, babe. We'll, we'll, Alex. we'll,
1: we'll give you the full stack after we'll shoot you yeah, a list of everything. Do.
0: Okay. Um, thank you for having me, by the way.
1: Of course, our pleasure. So you are arguably one of the most well-known names in fitness and nutrition. And you've had this incredible career in the space from, Starring as a personal trainer on The Biggest Loser, to founding your own wellness empire, Empowered Media, to writing eight New York Times bestselling books on health and fitness. I'm just trying to embarrass you as much as possible. But oh but no, to, no, to, 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 sorry. But but to oh, take it back, the
0: Emmy nomination, which by the way, I did not win. But, did not win. Did I say that? No, Lost. no. It sounds but like there anyway. are no
1: hard feelings at all. No. Um, no, but to take this back to the beginning, I would love to just hear where this passion for the industry started. So when did you first become interested in fitness?
0: Gosh, I'm kind of the anti, right? Um, and I mean that literally, I was your absolute cliche. The overweight kid, big nose, bad skin, braces. Gay, didn't know I was gay, but like everybody else knew I was gay at a time when it was not cool to be gay. Um, And I was just the quintessential, sorry to say, the, the loser kid, the one everybody called the loser. So my mom felt so bad for me. She was looking for a community outside of school. And my parents were in the middle of divorce. She got me into martial arts, and I ended up loving it. I was 12. And it gave me a community, gave me a sense of empowerment. There were people that I really respected and admired who believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. And by virtue of my faith in their expertise and they tell, them telling me like, no, you're, you're good, you got this. It built this bridge for me to start to believe in my own capabilities and worth. So organically, as I got older, right, I began to get healthier, more fit, skin cleared up, got the nose job, not sorry, <laughs> and really not sorry. And, um, you know, long story short, it allowed me to rebuild every facet of my life. And I began to appreciate that when we feel strong physically, it transcends into other facets of life and your health is an excellent platform to build your life on top of. So then I kind of organically fell into helping other people with it.
1: What age was that?
0: Uh, 17. Okay. 17. So I graduated high school early, not because I am a genius, uh, but because my birthday is on a really weird date. And I'm sure my parents just wanted me out of the house. And I was delivering food for like five bucks an hour because the days of $20 Postmates fees did not exist yet. And um, I was at the gym training for my black belt. And people would come up to me and ask me if I was a trainer. And I thought, like, I wonder how much this job pays. So I started charging fifteen dollars an hour, and my mom, thank God, being the voice of reason at the time, was like, "I think you need some sort of credential, like a badge. you need something. <laughs> <laughs> and she paid for me to get my first training certification. And then the rest is kind of history
1: That is incredible. And out of curiosity, do you still do karate today?
0: <sighs> I was I had a kind of a severe injury. Not kind of. I um, I fell. Not in, everyone's like in the gym. I'm like, no, not in the gym. Um, I had a really bad fall and I fractured my spine and herniated oh, three discs. And it was life changing. So I had a guy named Stu McGill who is like the foremost spine expert in the world. This guy, and um, he goes, listen, he's like, you'll be fine, but you're never going to have your old back back and he's like there are things that you will never do again like jujitsu for example and i had just moved to southern miami and signed up for jujitsu with my daughter who was then 11 and i was like wow so i don't anymore that blows i'm sorry that's why you got to be careful don't do stupid shit man
1: so, 17 years old is when you were in the process of getting your black belt. Uh, people ask you at the gym if you train. You weren't a trainer. Your mom helped you get the certification to train, yeah. paid better than the $5 an hour pre postmates delivery. When did the biggest loser opportunity come about?
0: 13 years after that.
1: So, when you um, were 30? 30.
0: 30. Yeah. And and it was kind of a long journey along the way. And um, I had the whole, like, I need a real job moment at about 24, got an office job at uh, a talent agency in Hollywood, never been more miserable, left that job at 27. But because of that job, that's how I ended up on The Biggest Loser because it allowed me to build a really strong clientele. And one of the agents that I used to work with at ICM, Heard about the job and put me up for the job. And he was training at a sports medicine facility that I had ended up opening at 30. Uh, and then I ended up getting that job. And here we are.
1: And obviously, it was, you know, an incredible run and incredible experience. But I would say, from my understanding, your experience with the show and your, um, Perception of the show wasn't absent of criticisms or things that could have b- been done differently, and so yeah. if you were being asked to do the show again today, how would you want the show to be done differently?
0: How much time do you have? I mean, do you have? Yeah, we'll, do have we'll, give, it, we'll give it. We'll
1: give we'll, it. We'll give it five to seven. Right now, you got
0: some time. <laughs> um. So, okay. the The tools that you need to help somebody. And I'm going to say get better because I mean get better, right? When somebody is utilizing food in such a way that they are putting their life at risk imminently, okay, we want them to get better. We want to help them with whatever is underneath that's driving them to either overeat or choose to be a bigger size or both. And whether they realize it or not, it is a choice and they are making it. And generally they don't realize it. It's unconscious. It's a coping mechanism, it's defense structure for a host of reasons. Uh, it could be how they bonded with their mother over food. It could be because they were molested as a child and they see it as a way to desexualize themselves. There's a, There's a million different reasons why. But you gotta get to the bottom of why. You gotta help them understand it. And then you have to give them the tools to work through the pain and cope differently. Because at one time or another, This survival mechanism of either overeating or being a different size represented for them their psychological survival. So letting go of that shit, not going to be easy. And this is why so many people who lose weight put it back on because diet and exercise are wonderful. They treat symptoms. They'll clear up all the symptoms, but if the problem's not fixed, the symptoms start again. So knowing that, right, you have a show that is about diet and exercise, which is, which is great. But let's also be honest. If we look at the landscape, okay, housewives still on Kardashians still on amazing race still on survivor still on. Loser, great show not by
1: on. the way. <laughs> Survivor's the best,
0: <laughs> right? All still on the air. Yep. Losers not on the air. Mm-hmm. Why? And the truth is, you know, you can blame all oh, woke PC, co- bullshit. The show never won an Emmy. The show was always being criticized. And I think at inception, the producers built something that they intended to humiliate people. You have to remember that this was the time of like the swan, which you're so young, you're not even probably going to know what that is, but it was like they would just go out of their way to just humiliate people on these shows. And that's what Loser was supposed to do, right? The biggest loser. But all of a sudden, Bob and I get in there and we're like, fuck these guys, right? We're going to do what we do. And you got a guy that lost 100 pounds in eight weeks, and the producers are like, wait a minute. You know, we thought we built a Mack truck, but maybe we have a sports car. But everybody was like, I don't know, it looks like a truck. It sounds like a truck, but it's driving like a... So, you know, the whole show was designed at Inception to embarrass people, and then they tried to kind of retrofit it. And everybody smelled bullshit there. It, it's it, it's an inherent problem. It really is. And the younger generation is just that much more savvy That they weren't willing to kind of look the other way on that. So, right off the bat, you got a problem. You need a show that intends to help people from the beginning and then incorporates what is needed because you need a mental health component in that format to help people. And in addition, you got a show that's eliminating the people that are doing the most work in real life. Those are the ones that make it, right? So, you got to reverse engineer the show where the person that's doing what needs to be done doesn't get voted off in fact, nobody gets voted off in life they fucking quit so if I did it again i'd be like there's you don't win shit here's what you win. you win your life back and if it's too hard, quit that's the elimination period because that's that's life
1: let's talk about the fitness mm-hmm. app Tell the us app. kind of the story about how it came about and also I have to ask like you know yeah. fitness products are incredibly what it feels like commoditized these days. And I think that largely feels like the reason because everyone and their mother is a fitness influencer. And the way you start thinking about monetizing yourself is obviously through your skill set and your craft. And the bar feels pretty low to teach people fitness. So how do you think about differentiating yourself other than having a massive freaking audience?
0: For me, I've already differentiated myself for better or for worse. You either love me or you hate me. You know, there are people who are like, I love her because she tells the truth. And there are people that are like, I hate her. She's a bitch. You know? The truth is, though, if everybody likes you, you're doing something wrong. That said, um, if I was speaking to somebody younger, I think you need a few things above all else. One is passion. Because I think when you're passionate about what you do, It comes across in the right way to the people that need to hear it. Instead of it being like, look how beautiful I am on Instagram. Here's my butt doing squats. The girl that actually is like, I feel so lost. I feel powerless to this. I can't stop eating or I can't stop doing this or I can't stop. Is going to see a message of strength in your work. And that's going to resonate. Now, there's a whole different group that's going to be like, I want that ass when I do squats. And that's great. You know, I've been, I've been both of these people. In my quest for wellness, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think being authentic and really being passionate about what you're doing is going to attract an audience that trusts you. Mm -hmm. I just did a a hit this morning at a local news station. I haven't done local news in such a long time, but I live in Miami. So I was like, I'm doing it. And it was the cutest thing. Like I had women coming at me from all sides and they're like, oh my God, I did this workout. I did that workout during COVID. I did this workout. I lost 20 pounds. You got me through this. You got me through post-pregnancy. And it's like, why are they still working out with me? Because it works, because they get results. So you got to deliver on the promise you make. And that's how you stand out.
1: The big kind of nuance to this is you're talking about how do you create longevity? And the way yeah. you create longevity is through building trust. And the it, it's funny, it's like the win-win because you build trust by creating a product that is authentic to your lived experience because yeah. people are like, wow, this person's being authentic. But also for you, longevity is created because you feel like you could create this content or this product for years without it starting to feel like a chore or burning you out if it's not part of your lo- lived experience it makes it way harder to do it for a long time.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. and. It doesn't work yeah you know I, i've seen so many people are always sending me stuff and i'm like that doesn't work you know that right and they're like but we're selling millions of them and i'm like i cannot go sell that like muscle stimulator thing on TVC <laughs> for you because it doesn't fucking work yeah so you also can't be a sellout you, you got to be exactly what you said creating creating authenticity and therefore trust and that breeds longevity because everybody else will have fallen off along the way
1: Being as famous as Jillian, of course, comes with its fair share of criticism, especially when what you're famous for is being an expert in health, a topic that often feels incredibly sensitive and personal for people. And though Jillian struggled with feeling inadequate as a kid, she's well past the need for approval from others now.
0: I'm beyond caring what people think about me. I have been for a long time, and only because I've survived you know, multiple cancel attempts, like hate coming from every direction. And then you end up living another day and all of a sudden it just becomes like, oh, is that all? You know, you you think like, oh my God, I'm never going to work again. Oh my God, my life is over. Oh my God, everyone hates me. And it's really just this group of lunatics online. You know, it's the tail wagging the dog. And then you you continue on um, and life goes on. So you get past caring. When people come up to me, they're usually sharing some part of their journey with me. So it's not so much about validating like, Oh, Jill, I know who you are. They're saying like, I did this and I achieved this and you got to play this small role. And then I feel like I have some meaning, like it gives me meaning in life. And it's I like think why that's you really do what important. you do. Yes. Yes. It, it makes me feel a little less helpless in a crazy ass world. So it gives me that sense of meaning and purpose. And I I love that and I'm grateful for it. You know, at my age, with everything I've been through, I'm I'm pretty good with myself. I know the areas that need work and I'm not proud of them. They all revolve around parenting in large part. (laughs) I really could do a better job there sometimes. Um, But, I, you know, I work on it. And that is... uh, really my biggest kind of like where i have my greatest insecurities is that job just goddamn that's a hard job wow and you you make big mistakes and then you think to yourself like the way i used to blame my parents for all this shit that's going to be
1: <laughs> it's the hardest job in the world <laughs>
0: that's going to be them talking about me fuck so you know you do the best you can
1: We're gonna take a quick break here, but when we come back, we'll get into when Jillian first began battling with depression, some of her lowest moments, and the tools that she found to help her work her way back to a healthier mental state. Stay with us.
0: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card.
1: Now we're back. Before the break, Jillian described the path that brought her to The Biggest Loser and how she ultimately got to where she is today. But what many might be surprised to learn is that she has a long history of dealing with depression. Something else you've been open about is your struggle with depression, and I think many people who know you, have heard of you, have seen you on The Biggest Loser, they might be surprised to hear this because on screen you have this infectious personality that is high energy and is confident, and I think maybe stereotypically people don't associate that with someone who is depressed. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with depression and when you first realized that you were struggling with it?
0: Okay, I have to say this for myself, because certain people um, struggle with it biochemically. They have a constant low-grade depression, like dysthymia, I believe it's called. My mom struggles with it, actually uh i am lucky i do not have that but i am very impacted by situational uh depression and if i am not careful it can become biochemical and has a couple times in my life i would say the first period was the 12 13 14 maybe not 14 i think i was coming out of it at 14 um but it was this kind of pervasive sense of helplessness at that age and a total lack of self-worth and self-esteem uh, that put me in kind of a dark place. And over time and through martial arts and, you know, redefining my belief and my abilities and rebuilding my self-image, I got healthier. I got stronger physically and mentally.
1: Before we kind of move on to the kind of the next, uh, call it, period in which you felt that the next or the next situation when you were at that age say 14 how much awareness did you have around
0: none kind of yeah none and um you know part of what I find really disturbing in general with the world these days is that the things i thought didn't said at that age like i I was homophobic. I was gay and didn't even know I was gay. I would have said to you, I I mean, I'm sure I did. You know, gay, It's disgusting. That's disgusting. I was obviously, something was wrong or not gay being wrong, but something was wrong in that I was fighting something I didn't even understand. Now, if a kid did that now, their life would be over. They'd never work again. There'd be no college. They get, get HIVs slapped on them and they'd be blacklisted forever. Their face would be on the Daily Mail. They get fired from jobs 10 years from now. So I had no understanding. I didn't understand I was depressed. I didn't understand I was gay. I didn't understand any of it. Um, and it came out in a host of ways that, that were ugly, like me hating gays before realizing I was one. Um, and I got to say, I give credit to, to um, Madonna because... When she came out with Justify My Love, you had the coolest woman in the world saying like, not only is this it is not you know, gross, it's sexy and it's cool. And I was like, sexy and it's cool? What? But it, nobody understands until somebody helps them understand.
1: And that's why it's profound also when role models end up kind of espousing messages that make people feel seen, right? Because at the end of the day, where, where do people look to? It's like, has a, a big impact.
0: Yeah. You make a great point. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't have much understanding of it at all. Looking back, obviously I'm like, Whoa, that was a dark time. And I would you know, order pizza after school and sit on the roof and eat an entire pizza by myself. Or I would like, Oh God, Jesus. I would go to Taco Bell and order three bean and cheese burritos with no onions and extra cheese and a taco Supreme. And God bless myself, a diet Coke. And my mom, it was the eighties. My mom didn't know what to do. So yeah, I was, I was a mess as a kid. Um, well, she did get, she got me help, but she didn't interject with things like that. And I don't know if it would have been a good idea had she. What was the help? Um, she got me into martial arts and she got me into therapy. And the combo, I really do believe, did, did the trick. Um, and then at 27, when I had that desk job I had mentioned to you, that had gone so far south uh, I found myself like, Oh God, almost homeless. When I was 17, my, my parents had ended up saying like, okay, get out. Like you're done, get out. But I loved the freedom. So it didn't bother me. I wasn't depressed by it. I was like sleeping on couches and finding a way, but I felt free for the first time at 27, losing this job. I was like scraping up change to put gas in the car to go to interviews. I'd wasted three years of my life in the entertainment industry at that time, or so I thought I was like I'm twenty seven. I don't have a pot to piss in. I've wasted all this time. I don't know what to do with my life. And I was freaked out. I got out of a relationship I'd been in for six years that wasn't healthy. It was all a blessing, but at the time, you know, you're like, whoa, this is uh, this is dark. And I got put on um Zoloft. I got put on Zoloft for the first time, there was the second time, and it helped. It put a floor under me so I could function. Cuz I was like paralyzed. I was having a real hard time like going to interviews and answering, you know, building resumes. I was really fucked up. It was it was um it was tough. So that allowed me to kind of get functioning again, and once I was functioning, I was able to get a foothold and start rebuilding my life and then I was Tapering off of it, uh, and the third time was when I knew I needed to get a divorce. Even though we, I wasn't married to Heidi. I mean, I may as well have been. We had two kids together, and houses, and all of this shit, and had been together eight years. And I was like, "This is going to be hell." You know, you just you. I used to say it, it felt like, you know, when you're kind of circling around the event horizon of a black hole, and you know you're got you got to go in. And I was just like, oh my God, I don't even know how I'm going to do this. Like, how do I unwind this? And it's like, you're, you miss the person that you fell in love with. You're totally miserable in the relationship. You know, you're going to ruin your kids' lives. And you know, you've got a hellish couple of years.
1: Yeah, it's a lose lose.
0: <laughs> it's just, you're fucked. Right. So that was a bad one. And that was this I said to my shrink, because like I would fall asleep and I'm, I, listen. I have never had suicidal tendencies, but sometimes when you think to yourself, if the bus took me out right now, would this be a relief? And it's like, whoa, that's, that's not a good feeling. And I, I said to my shrink, I was like, I, I don't think I'm okay. And I, I think I need to get on something again. And he sent me to a psychiatrist who got me on. I said, listen, I've been taking, you know, or not. I've been back in the day. I took Zoloft and it worked really well for me. So it, 40 whenever I got this divorce 42 put me back on Zoloft a pediatric dose is all I needed because I'm tiny tiny and um I was on it for about a year and it got me through it um and I got off of it again and there have been times where I'm like no (laughs) like I can I can get through this we're not we're not there yet um because again I understand that bad shit in life happens the issue is when it becomes biochemical and you're no longer able to handle your business. Yeah, And then it, and then it begets itself. Once it becomes biochemical, you're in a, a, an impossible spider web and you got to break that. You got to break it. And that's where I, I think you got to see a psychiatrist.
1: You've mentioned now, call it like three periods in your life where you experienced, you know, some flavor of depression that at times turned biochemical. So the first was when you were a kid, had no sense of who you were, you were no self love, and it seemed like your coping mechanism. At least one of them was overeating and eating to to work through those feelings. Yeah, and it 100%. sounds like the tools you were given to navigate that was martial arts, which was you know let's call it part uh, health and wellness, part community and then also the therapist. Second was you were working that desk job and just felt so lost. And at the bottom, that's when you started taking Zoloft. And the final was around your divorce, you started taking medication again. Talk about what were your coping mechanisms in those second two periods and what were tools that you used actively in your life beyond just medication?
0: Therapy. Um, I was in therapy and my shrink has been my shrink for a really long time. And he's, uh, it's kind of like, he's my compass, you know, he kind of brings me back to center and he's my sounding board and helps me reflect and calls me out on my shit, which by the way I need, that's, that's one thing that I don't think I got across well enough is I need tough love. So when I say I was in martial arts, it was health and wellness. But I mean, I used to get the shit kicked out of me and not in a way of like, it wasn't you know, gratuitous. It was like, I'll never forget. I was fighting in the studio. I was sparring with my karate teacher and he kicked me in the stomach in the corner and knocked the wind out of me. And I was like, oh my God, this son of a bitch kicked me hard. I'm 12, right? How dare he? I'm crying. I'm like pissed. I'm indignant. And I'm like sitting in the corner crying and he's like, get up and fight. And I still cry and he kicks me again through the wall and through the drywall. And he goes, I swear to God, if you do not get out of that fucking corner, I will break every rib in your body. And I, <laughs> I was like, oh, you know, and it, I, go, I got out of that corner. And the thing is, people nowadays are like horrified. They call yeah, who say, knows? I
1: was going to say at the karate studio today. That, no
0: shot. Right yeah. now, no, no way does that happen. Um, and it's so funny because one of my now very close friends is my daughter's karate instructor in Los Angeles, and we talk about how you know our training was so different than what's allowed now. But what he was doing was essentially showing me that like life does not stop kicking you. So whether you're a victim or not is totally irrelevant. Get up and fight your way out of this, and then you can look back and do a post mortem on what's right and what is it. But at the end of the day, how you're going to respond the shit that isn't fair yep. is what's going to allow you to move forward. So, you know, my strength does not break every rib in my body, but he will be like, I'm going to call bullshit on you. Yeah, I think that you're projecting and you're doing this and that's not right. And, you know, like with my kids, he's like, no, you can't do that. You're, this is not okay. You're going to end up doing this, this, and this, and this, this to her or, or whatever. So having somebody really call me out on my shit works for me. I need it. Um, it, it works for me because... I have the self esteem to tolerate knowing that I am deeply flawed and it gives me a quicker way to get better. So that works well for me. Um, Friends, but I, you got, they've got to be the right ones because the wrong ones can make you feel worse. So uh, my brother who, who called right before our interview, we're, we're really close. He's much younger than me, but um, we're very, very close. So, he lived with me actually during during that time because he broke up with his girlfriend and I moved in to our beach house because we had a farmhouse and my brother moved in with me during that time um, for a couple of years and I don't I don't think without him living with me sounds
1: like a really special relationship
0: yeah we're we're really close he he would like pick me up off the floor some days so having at least one person or maybe get to a group outside or maybe take a class somewhere or find like-minded people. Uh, I think that's so, so important. And then last but not least, I am huge in taking control of what I can. So for example, when I broke my spine, fractured my spine, I could not, oh my God, I couldn't stand. I couldn't walk. Three months, I could not stand up. And I was like, I, by the way, did not get on medication because I was, had Stu McGill helping me with like, no, this is what we're going to do. No, you're going to be okay. No, you're going to, uh-uh, it's going to be okay. And my wife was like, you're fine. It's going to be fine. We're going to be okay. going to walk again. My acupuncturist, I mean, I had like a team helping me. So what I got into was like, I got into Wim Hof, like all the way down the Wim Hof rabbit hole, right? Before everybody was cold plunging. I was gonna so was say like that's deep. a big
1: deep rabbit hole right now.
0: Yeah. I got into Wim Hof and I watched his documentary and I started to do like cold exposure, more breath work, got into the acupuncture more than I ever had before. Um, I started supplementing all this crazy, weird anti-inflammatory shit. I started, you know, following like Huberman labs and you know, all these Rhonda Patrick, like, because I was like, I'm gonna heal my body, so help me God. And I remember watching the Wim Hof documentary, and there was a guy with cancer. And he goes, What I love so much about this is it gives me something I can control. And I was like, son of a bitch. What can you control? Is it 30 seconds of cold exposure? Is it your diet? Is it your supplement regimen? Where can you start to claw back control? And I think that helps so much.
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, such a profound point. Um, no matter kind of what you're experiencing, just focusing on the controllables. And as long as you do that, you can have regrets around the choices that you've made. Jillian Michaels, thank you so much for joining Imposters.
0: Oh my God, thank you so much for having me, I've had a blast.
1: I love Jillian's holistic approach to mental health. She, of course, has the tough love mentality that you might expect if you're familiar with her work, but she also is an advocate for therapy, medication if it's something that's right for you, and finding the things that give you some sense of agency and control. Much like her approach to maintaining physical health, her approach to mental health feels incredibly balanced. And I really love what Jillian said towards the end of our interview, that ultimately, How you choose to respond to the hardship is what will allow you to move forward. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our producer is Michaela Heck, Greg Jacobs is our video producer, and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler.